to the January 2022 episode for the Journal of Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition. My name is Kelly Tappenden. I am editor-in-chief of JPEN, and I'm pleased today to be able to interview Dr. Liam McKeever, who is the Aspen Clinical Guidelines Director and Editor-in-Chief. We're going to be discussing the brand new paper entitled Guidelines for the Provision of Nutrition Support Therapy in the Adult Critical Care Patient, American Society for Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition. Welcome, Dr. McKeever. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk about this. Yes, so am I. And there are going to be so many of our readers that are excited that this new guideline has come up. So give us a bit of background. This is an update from the 2016 critical care guideline that was published in conjunction with SCCM, but not a complete update, right? Tell us what we've got here. Yeah, so this is actually, I think, a point of confusion for some people, as I've heard people talking about it. What the group decided to do was they wanted to update just the five questions that they knew we had new data for. And the idea was not that this would completely replace the 2016 guidelines, but that it would be used in conjunction with the uh, other expert opinions of the 2016 guidelines until we have a new paper come forward. So just an update in areas where updates were required or, or valid, right? Um, how did you go about updating the guidelines? What was the methodology that you used? So we actually, for those five questions that we updated, we did a complete redo, right? Uh, because we didn't have access to the original search methods. So we did a, a systematic search and went through and pulled everything back from 2001 you know, with guidelines, we usually stop at 2001 because that's when uh, glucose management changed so much in the ICU. And so we want to make sure that we're inferring from the same population of people that we have today. So we went back from 2001 and, uh, you know, everything is done in duplicate. So people go through and, and scan, they pull relevant citations from that. We pull rel like articles and then scan those in duplicate and then do data abstraction in duplicate so that we have uh, lots of checks and balances to make sure that all of our information is accurate and correct. Well, those six questions that you knew could be updated based on advancements in the literature, did, did you look at the other questions to do a complete lip search and see if there were papers to update those others? Because everyone wants to see like a complete update. Of course. You know, so... How, how careful were you in making sure that these were the only questions that could be updated? So here's what happened. You know, we were relying on the fact that we had an expert panel and we did a, a little scoping review just to kind of look and see. But no, there was not a full systematic review done to make sure that there were absolutely no updates to those expert opinion questions. We are actually in the process of doing that. We've already got board approval. So this, this guideline update is not the end of the story. This is actually the first leg. And then we're, there's a sister paper that is going to be coming out where we are going to do that search. Uh, and we are going to go through every single expert opinion question. And you know, what, what happened there was actually pretty reasonable. So, you know, the guideline changed hands midway through. So Carol Braunschweig was the editor in chief in the beginning of this. And she and the panel just made a very reasonable decision, which was we've already got all this expert opinion, you know, we stay on top of the literature, we know that there's nothing coming forward, let's just do an update of what we know needs to be done, because that was very important. That, that has not been updated since 2012. 
even though it was published in 2016, that guideline stopped its search in 2012. So there was just lots of work to do there. And so they decided to focus their efforts there. Personally, I think that expert opinion should be updated um, because expert opinion changes, right? I mean, it's been a long time. And, you know, people see the expert opinion of the 2016, they react to it, they think about it. And so uh, I would like to see that updated. The second reason that I want to update it is because I, I, you know, we have very systematic methods now for doing that. We've got this modified Delphi technique where it starts with a blinded vote amongst the panel and it doesn't move forward until everyone has 70% or greater agreement. And then once that happens, it leaves the hands of the clinical panel, goes to an external validation panel of eight to 10 people who go through the exact same process. So this sister paper that we're creating that is gonna give you that update you're asking for, it is going to be at a level we've never done before. It's going to be a true opinion of a diverse, broad group of people, of, of expert practicing clinicians in the field. That's really exciting, actually. I didn't know that you were moving in that way. So we have fun things to look forward to in the future. Mm-hmm. But before we get ahead of ourselves, what are your recommendations? What does this paper tell us? So we sought to answer five questions, but the fifth question has two parts to it. So there's one question looking at energy intake on clinical outcomes, one looking at protein intake on clinical outcomes, one looking at the safety of parenteral nutrition versus enteral nutrition, one looking at the benefits of supplemental parenteral nutrition. And then uh, the fifth question is split in two. One is just looking at Well, they're both looking at injectable lipid emulsions, and one is looking at pretty much any deviation from soy oil, and the other is looking at fish oil versus non-fish oil containing products. Tell us what you found. What What are the new recommendations? Okay, so for question one, our question was, in adult critically ill patients, does provision of higher versus lower energy intake impact clinical outcomes? And you know, it's, it's always tricky, these questions, right? Because we're asking questions that are answerable with the literature, but it's not really the question you want to know the answer to, right? What you want to know is how much should I feed them? But uh, that you usually have to kind of infer from the findings that you get, and you're not always able to do this. But what we found was that this, you know, we have more data on this question than I think I've ever seen on a nutrition guideline. The problem that we ran into with answering this question is that there was so much heterogeneity in how the intervention and comparator groups were carried out. And so what that means is some groups were looking at maybe 29 versus 19 kcals per kilogram. So essentially well-fed versus well-fed. Others were looking at standard care versus trophic feeding, so basically underfed versus underfed. Only a few looked at anything that was maybe above 16 versus below 12. And we didn't have really any guidelines that we could say really straddled what we needed it to straddle to give us a lot of the answers that we wanted. So when you put all of those together, just saying, well, they all had more versus less. So let's see if more versus less has any effect. You know, kind of not surprisingly, we saw no significant difference in clinical outcomes in higher versus lower levels of energy intake. 
But it's hard to figure out how meaningful that really is. Just because of that heterogeneity, you can really wash those effects out. And so based on that, you know, one of the things that we did was we did a safety analysis. So, you know, my thought was, let's take a look at kcals per kilogram along an x-axis and measure that against hospital mortality on a y-axis. And, you know, then we can stratify by all the different confounders like Apache 2 score, like BMI, like country of origin, medical system, things like that. And, you know, my thought at the time was, at least I'll be able to say, we didn't see any negative impact. And so there's no reason to deviate from the 2016 guidelines. But what we were quite surprised to see was actually a positive trend in mortality uh, as you go from lower to higher kcals per kilogram. Now, I want to state very overtly, this doesn't conclude anything. This was a very broad stroke look at this. But it is the opposite of what you would expect to see if meeting 25 to 30 kcals per kilogram was beneficial or even benign. And so it did cause us to lower our guideline recommendation just a little bit. You know, I, I, what the group decided to do was they decided to say, well, why don't we just say that, you know, we have data between 12 and 25 kcals per kilogram. And so they're suggesting right now that feeding anywhere between 12 and 25 kcals per kilogram in the first seven to 10 days of ICU stay should be their recommendation. But in general, the, the kind of spirit of what's happening here is we're just, you know, just lowering a little bit, just uh, until we can get better data to explain what we're seeing in this safety analysis. So, I, you know, this is a guideline where the supplemental material, the uh, supporting appendix is very important. You know, most people never download that. This is a guideline where you're going to want to download that and take a look at it. So that's really, I'm sorry, I, I just want to comment on that. It's very interesting because it's kind of consistent with the permissive underfeeding and the beneficial outcomes associated with feeding at the 70% level of energy needs when one's critically ill, right? In that hypermetabolic situation. Did mm -hmm. you look and see at these papers? I know you were doing high versus low, and I'm sure that there were various ways of estimating energy in these individuals, but did you look and see what percentage with your safety analysis, is it coming in at that 65 to 70% that is one of the guidelines included in 2016? Well, you know, we didn't look at it as far as percent of, of percent received. We just looked at it as far as kcals per kilogram received and only for the ones that we could get kcals per kilogram. You know, it's very difficult in guidelines to get consistent measures of things, right? Even kcals per kilogram, which seems standard, a lot of things get left out because people don't give you the information you need to be able to calculate kcals per kilogram. So, I, you know, we, we did not. So, so that was what we had the most of. And that's what we looked at. Okay, let's move on to number two. Mm -hmm. So number two had to do with protein. And so we were looking at, uh, in adult critically ill patients, does provision of higher as compared to lower protein intake impact clinical outcomes? And here again, we saw no difference in clinical outcomes. But what I think the group was very, very surprised at was, you know, there's just this sense amongst the people at Aspen that there's just tons of data on protein. There's not tons of data on protein. <laughs> there were about five studies and only three of them could be conflated into a forest plot. So I think, you know, this no difference is really more about, we don't have enough studies to really fully answer that question. 
So what we decided to do was just stick with the 2016 guideline suggestion of 1.2 to 2 grams per kilogram per day. And that's also consistent with the ESPN guidelines on the same issue. Yeah. Um, question number three. Question number three is parenteral nutrition versus enteral nutrition. So in adult critically ill patients uh, who are candidates for enteral nutrition does similar caloric intake by parenteral nutrition versus enteral nutrition as the primary feeding modality in the first week of critical illness impact clinical outcomes. Now I'm gonna have to take a breath because that's a long one. Uh, there were only two major studies that looked at this, but they were gigantic, thousands of people. This was uh, Harvey et al. and Renier et al. And both of them found that there was no significant difference in clinical outcomes. Uh, since similar caloric intake provided as parenteral nutrition was not found to be superior to enteral nutrition and no differences in harm were identified, we basically are recommending that you can use either. We assume most people will use enteral because it's more affordable, but I don't think the safety consideration of parenteral nutrition is as viable as we used to think it is. I, I think we can put that to bed. You know, what's wonderful about having two such large studies to answer this question is that, you know, when you're doing a study, to be able to detect an effect, it takes a much smaller sample size to be powered to detect an effect. But when you want to be able to say there's no effect, that's called an equivalent study. You need a much, much larger population to be able to say two things are equivalent. And so in this case, to have two studies that large really does provide us with a fair amount of confidence that there's really not a difference in clinical outcomes regarding parenteral versus enteral nutrition. I have to stop here because that's something that's being talked about in Aspen, that there's, there's really no difference. But if you look at the Singer et al. Uh, ESPN publication, the ESPN guidelines for critical care published in 2019, they did a forest plot and indeed confirmed that mortality was not different between enteral and parenteral nutrition in that first week, but that ICU length of stay and hospital length of stay were both reduced. Infections were reduced with a risk reduction of 0.56. How do we resolve other recent meta-analyses that show different than what you're describing? What are the outcomes that you're talking about? It's not a difference in outcomes. It's a difference in what you're willing to put into a forest plot. So a lot of times when you go and you look at other meta-analyses, what you're going to find is that they conflate things that are not conflatable. And so what do I mean by that? What I mean is, if you are going to look at the impact of enteral versus parenteral nutrition, that needs to be the only intervention. It can't just be tacked on to another intervention. It can't have a bunch of other competing interventions. You know, we ran into this situation when we were looking at, you know, uh, protein and calorie exposure. A lot of people think that there's tons of data on protein, for example, and the way, and you'll see meta-analyses with tons of studies for protein. And what they're doing is they're going back and they're saying, well, this was an intervention on enteral nutrition. So these people got more protein because of their enteral nutrition. And what people are neglecting to realize is they also got more calories. They got more fat. They got more carbohydrates. They got more nutrients. Those are all competing interventions 
when you try and break a compound intervention into its component parts. And so that's what I see a lot on other clinical guidelines that we are removing from this guideline because you just can't have any confidence. If, if, if doing that were okay, then two gigantic studies, multi-center trials would not have found what they found. These studies were just PN versus EN, that was the intervention. And so that's, I mean, you know, when you think experimental study design, that's kind of 101. You hold everything else constant and you change one thing. And that's how you know what's causing what. Did the Harvey study, for example, control when the enteral or parenteral nutrition was started post-admission? Because we know that early versus late feeding, it can also have an impact, right? in certain reports. And so not controlling for that or having some start early, some start late could put more noise in the situation and result in no difference, couldn't it? Sure, it could. But when you think pragmatically about it, it, like from a pragmatic trial perspective, the approach of saying, well, we can feed them with PN versus the approach of saying, we're going to feed them with EN you can usually start PN earlier versus EN. So I think from a clinical perspective, and I don't know the answer to your question, I can't remember, I don't have every detail of all these studies in my head right now, but I will say, even if they did start their parenteral nutrition early, that is approximately what would happen in practice if you decided you were gonna go with parenteral nutrition. Let's move on to question number four. Okay, question number four was, Uh, about supplemental PN. So in adult critically ill patients receiving enteral nutrition, does provision of supplemental PN as compared to no supplemental PN during the first week of critical illness impact clinical outcomes? And uh, so we, we conflated the studies that we could conflate that used that, and we found no significant difference in clinical outcomes Uh, And so based on no clinically important benefit found in providing supplemental PN early in ICU admission, we are recommending not initiating supplemental PN prior to day seven of ICU admission. And what about the concern that we might hear in the Canadian critical care or the Canadian practice guidelines that having that supplemental parenteral nutrition is going to delay then the time to full enteral feeds? Well, I mean, the people in these studies that that had their delayed full enteral feeds, it did not have an impact on any clinically relevant outcome, at least not on average. And so that's that's what we're basing this on. We're basing this on what the research actually says, you know? And it goes back to the question number three, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You know, there's another piece of this, Kelly, that we've gone for many, many years on this idea that we need to meet resting energy expenditure, right? That's what 25 to 30 came from. We were trying to approximate resting energy expenditure. And there's just this kind of assumption that we've made that it is safe and a good idea to meet resting energy expenditure in critically ill patients. But we don't actually know that that's true. You know, there have been some studies that have you know, implied the opposite. The safety analysis implied that there might be something to look at there. I I think there might be a magic number that we just haven't found yet for enteral nutrition. And so this idea that we have to push to 25 to 30, and if we miss a few days, that that's going to be a problem. I'm not saying it's not. I'm saying so far, we don't have a lot of data that supports the idea that it is. 
Well, and I, I think we have to spend some of our energy looking at getting metabolic parts uh, more available and in use, right? Because we know yeah. that there's all sorts of problems with even trying to use an equation in the first place. So if we're using a difficult and, and not necessarily valid methodology like estimating and then are deciding where in that estimate should we be, um, you know, COVID and the estimates uh, energy estimates with equations have shown us that we have a long way to go in, in trying to understand even how to accurately measure resting energy expenditure. Um, so it, it, it muddies the whole thing for me. Completely. I mean, that that's a that's a huge component too. And I think that comes down to a study design issue to initially more than a hospital like issue. Like if uh, we if we're doing our study design first, we need to know if we're meeting their resting energy expenditure to really know if meeting their resting energy expenditure is helping them. But there are, you know, there are some potential mechanisms through which meeting resting energy expenditure might be harmful. You know, there's, there's a, you know, there's a lot of research left to be done to find answers to these questions. But I completely agree. We need, we need to start prioritizing easier ways to get at true resting energy expenditure. The permissive underfeeding studies. I think underscore that really, really well. Yeah. Okay. Question number five. Question number five, five uh, A is in adult critically ill patients receiving parenteral nutrition. Does provision of mixed oil lipid injectable emulsions, so medium chain triglycerides, olive oil, fish oil, mixtures of oils, as compared to 100% soybean oil, uh, impact clinical outcomes? And so what we came up with uh, based on our findings was due to limited statistically or clinically significant differences in key outcomes, we suggest that you could use either. You know, right now we, we didn't see anything pushing in one direction or the other. But again, this was limited to people in their first week of ICU admission. And we're saying that basically just because that's what most of the studies did. So that's what we have data on. For question 5B, it was the same question, only it was looking at fish oil versus non-fish oil. Uh, we did find one study with a minor improvement, I believe it was in pneumonia, but then when it was followed up by all the other downstream outcomes, it didn't seem to be impacting anything that clinically relevant. So what our recommendation here was, due to finding only one outcome with a significant difference that was not supported by the data covering other downstream key outcomes, we suggest that either fish oil or non-fish oil containing uh, injectable lipid emulsions be provided to critically ill patients who are appropriate candidates for the initiation of parenteral nutrition, including within the first week of ICU admission. And, and one thing I'd like to say about this question in general is that I don't believe the jury's out on this. Uh, the studies that we got, you know, the majority of them were somewhat poorly designed. They were very small. They didn't provide a ton of information. So it was difficult to assess their quality. Uh, you know, we don't have a bunch of large multi-center trials to answer this question, but based on the data we do have, we don't see any reason not to do it, but we also don't see a, a big reason to make any specific choice over another choice right now. 
Okay. Well, I know that we are well beyond the time that we like to have these podcasts in, but I feel like we could talk about this for so long, Liam. Uh, <laughs> it's fascinating. And uh, I, I can't wait to dig into this paper, which is entitled The Guidelines for the Provision of Nutrition Support Therapy in the Adult Critically Ill Patient that will be published in the January 2022 issue of JPEN. Liam, thank you so very much. Thank you. It was such a pleasure talking to you.